he said, rectal cancer? She will not find a publisher for this book because it's rectal cancer. And I remember Jill calling me and telling me this, and, and I just remember responding, well, but rectal cancer is what I had. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where memoir writers read their true stories of personal daring. Then we talk about writing and life. I'm Michelle Rado. I never did see nothing like that. I never did dream nothing like that. When I turned six, I got the best birthday present ever. It was a tape recorder. Today, I think that that's kind of a sophisticated gift for a six-year-old. I can't remember if it was from my parents or my grandparents, but I know it was Thanksgiving, which is when my family would celebrate both my birthday and my cousin's birthday. It was a big, clunky, black, rectangular, tall device with buttons on the top and a cassette player that would pop out on the front. It had a radio on the side and a separate plug to plug in the microphone. That Thanksgiving, I walked around with my new contraption and interviewed every member of my family, what they were doing, what they were going to have for dinner. I don't even know what I asked them, but I just loved playing with that tape recorder. Later, I would record little stories and plays with anyone in the vicinity of where I was. I remember once with my friend Darcy, who lived down the street, we wrote out a script that had questions on it and then recorded sections of songs where the lyrics would be funny answers to the questions, kind of like maybe what a morning radio bit might have been. But Man, would I love to still have those tapes today. I recorded over and over and over on many of them, and then they broke, and then they probably got left in a box somewhere, and then we moved, and then they probably got trashed, and nothing is left from it. But that would be a very precious thing to still have. I think of this because, of course, here I am talking to you right now into my newer microphone doing the same kind of thing. Basically, I did when I was six, and I will call that activity playing, even though for decades I did exactly this, and it also became my vocation. But the way that we play as kids can certainly inform the types of people we grow up and become in the world. So that is also kind of true today for my guest, Eliza Walton, who has a different story about a different gift she received that launched her into a writing life that led to her book we will talk about today called The Colors I Saw, a cancer memoir, a book that I think will be of particular interest to memoir writers who I'm always hoping to connect with through this podcast. One other quick note. Eliza lives with quite a few animals who are the cause of much of the clanking and barking and other noises that happen sporadically throughout this episode, so I hope you will bear with us with that. Okay, enough explanations. Let's just hop in as I say to her. 
Hello, Eliza. Hello, Michelle. (laughs) I am so thrilled to have you here. Now, I'm going to also even say, because I'm going to try and be as transparent here as possible, you and I have had a conversation about gushing and how much I might gush. (laughs) So, And Eliza, you've told me you're very uncomfortable with the gushing, so I will try to contain and maybe you will also... (laughs) (laughs) enough already (laughs) enough already exactly so I am very excited to have you on Daring to Tell I have very much enjoyed your book I will say placidly just straightforward I very much enjoyed your book and I was thrilled to meet you through a mutual friend of ours Nancy who put us together and I think she didn't even have any idea how much you and I have in common yeah yeah so I often like starting about writing and I'm wondering if you want to tell me your writing story. Why, why do you write? So when I was 17, the person in my family with whom I was closest always was my older brother, Mac. And he died when I was 17 and he was 22 in a plane crash. I started writing because it blew a hole in my life. He was my closest friend and he was everything to me. And um, I, I asked for his typewriter as, a, as, a, as a, something to keep of his. He had always encouraged me to write. He bought me um, you know, jur- leather journals that were just a little too intimidating for me. So I asked for his typewriter and my father drove me back to, I was at boarding school. My father drove me back to boarding school, dropped me off. I walked into my dorm with my brother's typewriter and my little suitcase, put the suitcase down, walked back into town and bought a ream of paper and walked back to the dorm. And every day for the next at least 10 years, I wrote 3,000 words a day. I just, I put the paper in the typewriter and I filled three sheets of paper, both sides, single spaced with words. Wow. And I didn't think about it. I didn't, it wasn't like a journal. I just wrote, I just wrote. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would go through it with a highlighter the next day or once a week, something like that. And I would just highlight the phrases or sentences that I liked. And I didn't know then that I was learning how to be a poet. I read a lot. Mm. I read a lot of you know fiction and poetry. And I didn't know that I wanted to be a writer, but I knew that I had to do that. It was something I did for myself and probably also for my brother. Mm -hmm. But by the time I got to college, I'd already been writing a lot. So you were in, you were at boarding school. I was a senior. I was was young for my grade. I was, I was Uh in the middle of my senior year. And so I was accepted at the school where my brother was attending still when he died. He was was older, an older senior. Um, where was this? Well, that was, it was at Bennington College. And I mentioned that because uh-huh. that is a school, you know, for the arts. And I, I didn't apply. I was just blown out of the water. You know, I couldn't, I was in the middle of applying for colleges and I, I just couldn't do it. Right. And the director of admissions there had met me a couple of times, knew my brother very well. And she just called the person at the boarding school where I was and said, you don't need to tell Eliza this, but I'm telling you, she has a place at Bennington. Mm. I feel like this is a good bet. So so that's where I went. So at Bennington, I, you know, I had a lot of, it was, it was great. It was a perfect place for me in some ways as a writer, because that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I just, what did you write in those early days? Po- mostly poetry, but I kept writing these pages every day. Yeah. I never really thought of it as a journal, but I... Was it like informed by your life? I mean, in that yeah, such... Yeah, it was 
consciousness, but informed by what was happening, but also by right. imagination and all kinds of, you know, just anything. Right. Yeah. What about by your brother? Because that sounds like if he died tragically, was that a part certainly, of it? I, well, I certainly was drawn to writing about tragic events. That's true. Yes. And about pain. Yeah. Writing about pain was a, was a problem. That's true. That's probably had to do with my brother. I don't know. I don't know. But it was, you know, it's it, it always served me well because I don't think I would have found my own voice as early as I did if I hadn't done that. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because it also feels like you were instinctively doing what a writer and even an editor would do, which you would go back over your same words and like pick out for that's really something. Yeah, I just liked it. I mean, I don't feel like it wasn't like a, it was something that it really helped me get through those years. Yeah. 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 Would you do anything with the lines that you pulled out? I mean, then yeah. would that be what you turned into poetry or? Yeah, that, that happened more over time. So that would happen at college more than it happened, you know, the year before. Right. Right. So then, so continue. So then what happened? You went to college. Did you like study literature or what were you doing there? I did creative thesis and poetry. And then I went to New York afterward and I worked for Rolling Stone magazine for a while. Right. I'm curious to know more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it was like a proofreader and a, sometimes I'd get copy edited a little bit, but mostly I was also very ill. I became very seriously bulimic and anorectic when my brother died. Mm-hmm. So I was not in a very good shape in, in New York. So mm. So then I graduated from Rolling Stone and went right into a mental institution in, when I was 24. Oh, gosh. Well, it was okay. I mean, for me, you know, if I hadn't gone there, <laughs> I really needed that. So it was good. I was, there, yeah. for, I was yeah. there for a while. I was there for a year and nine months. Wow. And because I was in this habit of writing, the pages from that time in the mental hospital became a memoir and I worked with a wonderful, I've worked with really good people. I mean, I, I've never, I never was able to publish that book and I don't know why. Mm. It's interesting. I've never had any agent or any editor say it shouldn't be published. It's dated now, but I think it's still relevant considering the <laughs> number of people yeah. I know of who are anorectic and bulimic. It's still, you know, it's still a, a problem in the world. And I think I had a really, really good doctor. So I think that the, my memoir would still be serviceable. And I hope I'm still trying to figure out how to get it published. But anyway, right, that's right. what I did. Wow. Yeah. So you made it out of the mental institution. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got all healthy. I've never been anorectic or bulimic since. Well, and that's not true for everybody. Right. I know nothing about it, honestly. Yeah, so no, that's interesting. There's a very yeah. high recidivism rate. So. Uh-huh. I was lucky to, to find the doctor that I found, very lucky right. to be in the place that I was. And that doctor does play a role in the yes, book. Yes, he's in the book. Yeah. So that's, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. wait, I know that guy. <laughs> so, okay. So then you got healthy, which is yes. great. So then keep going. What happened next? And so then after a little while, I met my husband at a Halloween party and I fell in love with him as a healthy person. And I fell in love with this very, deeply grounded, kind person who was very smart, very creative and funny and interesting, but a lot of compassion. I'm making him sound like a hero, but he was, in many ways, he was like my brother, Mac, who died. He helped me reinforce the security that I'd gotten back when I was hospitalized. Mm. So I just really lucked into a a very kind person and a a very, his family was wonderful too. His parents especially were, I was very close to them. Mm -hmm. 
And um, and I we had three children, and I feel as though that was just the best thing I could ever have done. I mean, I kept writing the whole time, not so much when my three kids were really small. My husband traveled a lot, and we had a farm, too, and I, I didn't have time for writing then. But when my daughter was 11, I guess, I started, she's my youngest child, and I started writing again, and I finished the memoir that I had started. I was working with an editor at Knopf, and she had left Knopf by then, but when she read the memoir that I then finished, you know, 15 years later, she loved it. So mm-hmm. that made me feel as though I was still a writer and I, w- I was going to go ahead and do more of that. So then right. I, got, I ended up, when I couldn't publish that memoir, I ended up getting an MFA. Uh, okay. So that's what I was wondering, like connecting to the MFA program. Yeah. And I had, I had an agent then. I had an agent as well who I think probably wanted to stand by me. But when I, when she read the finished book that the editor, who was no longer at Knopf, loved, she didn't like it. Mm-hmm. It was too uh, spare for her. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to change it into a different book. I, I, you know, I, that was my book. So I started looking for another agent, and I just couldn't find one. I mean, I, I found a few people who were interested. One of them was was interested but couldn't find a place for that memoir. So she said, why don't you spend the time right now getting an MFA? You don't necessarily need one, but it wouldn't hurt. Right. It would hurt right. you out in the world. So that's what I did. So you were working on a novel. You were a poetry writer. You had written a memoir that just kind of wasn't getting traction right. anywhere, but it existed. Because I was thinking as I read this, I got to know you as someone who was working in fiction and was fully immersed in that, I'll just say, by right. the time that cancer right. steps into your life. Yeah. So it seems to me that you seemed a little reluctant about writing memoir when you start your memoir. So that's, I guess I'm kind of like, what, what were your concerns about memoir while you were working in fiction or with the, the genesis of this book? Well, I wrote half of this book as fiction when I was getting my MFA, and that became my thesis. It wasn't the finished thesis, but that was okay. It had to be a certain number of pages. So I had 150 pages or whatever it was. And I liked it. I liked it as a novel. I I liked the story as a novel. So I kept writing it as a novel, and I finished it, and I sent it off to agents. And and also, one of the the very wonderful man, uh, Scott Wolven, who was a who was teaching then at the MFA program, we met the last day after I graduated. We just met by chance. He and I liked each other. And he said, will you send me what you're working on? And he said, this should be published. So, you know, let's try to get, or no, I didn't have it finished then. He, he thought the memoir that I already had should be. So he tried to help me get that published and he didn't have any more success. But and then he said, keep sending me drafts of the novel you're working on about rectal cancer. I didn't start out writing about rectal cancer, but midway through the degree program, I was diagnosed and I couldn't write about anything else. It just took over my imagination. So I used what I had already started, the work that I was already started, and I folded rectal cancer into that, a character, me. I folded me into it. So I was writing a memoir as fiction. So then that became a novel that was very long. And also, it is very hard to get fiction published about cancer. Mm. That's what I kept being told by agents who liked my writing, but not the book as fiction. So 
I decided that I would, I think it was a um, very good publisher, I think in Boston, I can't remember who it is now, but anyway, they had a contest for an unpublished work of nonfiction. And I thought, well, this is based on nonfiction, on myself. So mm-hmm. I just turned the first hundred and something pages into nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I didn't win that, but I thought, huh, well, why don't I try to send this early part to various agents and see if that gets any more traction? And it did. I didn't get an agent, but I got more people saying, wow, I like this. And then by chance, a friend of mine ran into her brother-in-law from Chicago who had just started working with or was about to publish a book, a memoir, with a small press. I never met this person, and he never read the book, but he suggested to my friend that I send it to this small press, and I did. And while my husband was getting was diagnosed with another kind of cancer and was getting sicker and sicker, I was having an email correspondence with this press that just got me through that that ordeal. And mm. I mean, the story goes on, but I just think, you know, writing's always it's so interesting because you just never know what's going to happen. You you start with a line and then it goes into something else, and right. it's just always it's fine. Right. Well, what's I, that's so interesting. And what I love about that is there's so much behind the scenes of how this happened. And you clearly were open and flexible to maybe I'll try it this way. Maybe I'll try it that way. Yeah. And how some things get more traction and some don't. And some people like what they read and some don't. I think there's, a, there's a part of that. I don't mean to interrupt, but I think there's a part of that that has to do with I can be flexible as long as I'm not being untrue to myself as a writer. Yeah. There's a definitely, there are things that I wouldn't do, lots of things I wouldn't do, but right. but changing that book seemed like a smart thing. Right. Right. It, it wasn't betraying anything. Yeah. Yes. And I actually, I recognize that feeling as I work on things from time to time. Um, there's a piece I'm working on right now that it's like, feels very true all the way through. And right now I just changed it in a certain way that I'm like, okay, I think this is also what it's about. But I got to the end and I'm like, okay, my my biggest question to myself is, is this still how I feel? Like, is this true to myself for right. what it is? So I like hearing you say that because there is the the creativity of like, maybe this is something else. And, and it morphs along with us. I think as we morph and you did a lot of morphing over the course of this book and the way the writing interplays with you is what I find absolutely compelling about this. So I guess my other question is what were your concerns about writing a memoir about cancer and writing a memoir about rectal cancer? Did those surface as the project sort of, I say the project, the book went in that direction? Right. I mean, I felt, of, I should say, of course, I don't know if this, <laughs> I don't know if everybody thinks that they would react this way, but I felt very embarrassed by my cancer, the kind of cancer it was. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when I was writing the earlier memoir, memoir about being anorectic and bulimic, I remember how embarrassed I felt, especially about being bulimic. Mm. I remember thinking with the rectal cancer, look, I've already done this with bulimia. It didn't Mm. make me a smaller person to write about that. Whether it's ever published or not, it was a very good thing for me to write for me. Mm. So if I can do this, if I can shoulder the embarrassment 
and this book ever has a chance of helping anybody else, well, then it's worth it. It's worth it for me inside, but it's also worth it just in terms of wanting to write to do something good in the world. I don't want to do bad things in the world <laughs> if I can help it. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think yeah. embarrassment was part of it and and also not wanting to embarrass other people, maybe. I don't know. My, my, my family. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. And I think we'll get into that a little bit, too. So before we have you read, usually I will pick a spot in the book. Eliza, I told you this earlier. I'll usually say, oh, this is what I want you to read. In this book, I could just open to any page and go, that's (laughs) because as someone who has dealt with rectal issues herself and had um, rectal surgery, I will tell you to the point of doing good in the world and speaking to someone who it makes a difference. Um, I had the hardest time saying that word for probably uh, years after I had surgery. For quite some time, I said, I had colorectal surgery. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, and there's something about that word <laughs> that I found incredibly challenging. So right. um, that's yeah. Yeah. one of the things that was huge for me about loving your book, but we're not going to gush. So, (laughs) so what I did pick um, is very close to the beginning of the book. I was going to just set up a couple of the characters. So we know who's who Bill is your husband, Jill, who we hear by the end of this section is your best friend. Grace is your daughter and your youngest child, as you mentioned. And, This section is one week, it looks like, after when you got your phone call in the grocery store, which is how the book opens. So I don't know if you want to just give a quick synopsis about that grocery store scene, because that was like, oh, my God. Well, that's also fictionalized a little bit, because Uh I actually got that phone call in my living room, but I was alone. Yeah. I was alone in the house, and my my husband was, was not here. And I heard over the phone that diagnosis. And I thought it it made more sense later to frame it in a grocery store mm-hmm. because I was alone with people around me. I thought that was better. Uh, um, and I was alone where I couldn't just sink down to the floor. But I, when I got that phone call in reality, I remember just hanging onto the door jam in the living room and just sinking down. I couldn't move. Yeah. And, and I, I, I mean, people hear these things all the time over the phone. And yeah. if I hadn't, if I hadn't, you know, I'm not blaming the doctor really. I just think it's it was yeah, it's hard hard news. What was your question? I'm, I'm I lost my I lost the world. Did you find out a week before this happened? Before this triangles chapter, May twenty second. Yes, I did. Yeah, I found out. So your yeah. dates were dates. yeah yeah no no the dates were the same. There was just a place. There was just a place. That right was different. place. So basically, setting up this chapter, you found out a week earlier that you had had a biopsy that was not necessarily positive for cancer, but still they told you was very likely cancer, which is very confusing and um, really disturbing, frankly. (laughs) Um, So, and then this is a week later and this is a meeting with your surgeon. So when, whenever you're ready. Should I also, just before I start, should I also just explain about the Eliza C, about the fictional character or not? 
that's a good point. Why don't you introduce us to Eliza C? Yeah, I needed somebody in this book who can say and do the things that I would never say or do to, you know, friends who said the wrong thing, not intending to, or to a doctor or whatever. So I used a, a fictional character who was myself, but unmarried and lives in New York City and has her own, I made a, you know, character that was real to me. But I based her on what I thought my trajectory could have been had I stayed in New York, because it wouldn't have been healthy for me had I stayed in New York and not been hospitalized. Mm. So she was me having not had the benefit of a hospital experience uh-huh. and not the, the, have not having dealt with being anorectic or anything. Okay. Still alive. Right. Still alive and very much a snob and... <laughs> She ne- she's somebody who never got into her heart. Mm. Well, I I definitely want to talk and more about Eliza C., but that's good for us to at least know who she is as we encounter her. So whenever you're ready. Sure. Chapter four, Triangles, May 22nd, 2009. At Coastal Surgery in Portland, I asked to use the bathroom. Fifteen minutes later... I need to pee again. Standing up from the toilet, the green-tiled room swirls. Anal cancer, rectal cancer. Either, both, what's the difference? Maybe Dr. Turst is wrong. Other people, friends who are doctors, seem sure of this. I'm low risk, no hidden sexual partners, no dirty secrets, no family history, not overweight, don't drink much, never have, never smoked much, and I quit over 30 years ago. Steadying myself on the sink, I notice a blue sign hanging on the door. Chaperones available upon request. It's like a whiteout in the examining room. Walls, ceiling, paper covering the padded table, all white. Not much different from any other examining room, except for the sheet of plexiglass screwed into the wall next to the table. Splatter protection, I assume, shuddering, On the desk to my right, a pair of nylon gloves and a half-used tube of KY jelly. My knees clatter. She presses her palms down onto her bare knees. She does not quiver. She glances at her Longines watch. She considered Bulova, but the name reminded her of an eating disorder and shakes her head. Her doctor is 57 minutes late. He might have the time to spare. She doesn't. She stands up, ready to leave, when he enters. Dr. McLeod leans forward in his chair. My surgeon is handsome, with blue eyes beneath short, graying hair. Well, let's see what's going on here. Bill and Dr. McLeod leave while I undress from the waist down. With shaking hands, I try to tuck my underwear into my folded jeans, but the fabric writhes away like a snake. The doctor returns alone. He asks me to lie down first on my back, then on my left side. Gently, gently, he probes my rectum, trying to avoid the painful grape of a bulbous hemorrhoid. I wince, then try to lie still, to relax. He uses a scope, apologizing for the discomfort. I grab the vinyl mattress, holding onto the cushion as if it will keep me from drowning. When he's done, Dr. McLeod wipes me clean with a few soft cloths. I feel like a newborn, that bare, comforted by how carefully he avoids the throbbing fruit dangling there. 
I am not ashamed, just helpless, a little fretful. Sitting up, I pull the paper cover across my lap. I'd snip off that hemorrhoid for you if I dared. I know it's painful. With the cancer so close, though, I can't. We don't want to cross the lines. From then on, I hear only one word, cancer, 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 caromes off the hard walls inside my head, cancer like a club, colostomy like a boot, swipe at my head. I see stunned cattle at the meat yards, slaughtered baby seals, blood on their white fur, blood on the stark white snow. Standing up after Dr. McLeod leaves, the room swirls again. I reach out for my jumbled blue jeans. When my undies tumble out of the denim folds, my embarrassment flowers like those balled up hipsters spread out on the dark gray floor. By the time the doctor returns with Bill, I'm all socked and shooed, perched forward in my chair because it hurts to sit. Bill reaches over to pat my shoulder, my knee, my hand. I remember his promise. Whatever it is, we'll get through this together. I want to stay tucked inside the envelope he slit open for me. Probably not. Probably T2 or T3. If we can, definite permanent colostomy, says Dr. McLeod. Percentages are good. T3, 60. T2, 85. CT scan if surgery. He's waiting for me to, what, look up? I do. I want to say something. He won't stop talking. This will be a marathon, not a sprint. Think of it as a steeplechase. You have made a mistake. This is not my life. Mine is much calmer and prettier, has way better colors, turquoise, snow blue, shell pink. I'd like to get back to my life now, please. At home, I pluck illness as metaphor from the living room shelf. This feels both punitive and brave and stupid. I don't want to beg, shuddering on our bed that night, the dark room transected by neon colors swirling on the black screen of my mind. Triangles of bright green and yellow form and expand, fade to subtler hues. My own elephants on parade sequence from Dumbo. I sense suspicion at work here, a belief that if I want something a lot, if I ask for one particular big item from some intangible force, I will not get it. If I ask for something for someone else, well, then maybe. Even requests for safety and peace for my children set off those paranoid alarms because I believe no selfish requests are granted in this universe. It is as if begging for myself, for my own gain, oh God, oh God, please, please, please help me wake up now, will exact its opposite. I shiver in the perfect night air, covers pulled to my chin, and a husband breathing like a metronome behind me. Turning on my bedside lamp, I reach for my Pentel Twist Erase 07 and a black notebook. The chartreuse triangles linger even in the light. She lives in Manhattan, alone. She doesn't share a house or an apartment. She could have been accompanied to the surgeon's appointment by her lover or her best friend or her agent. Memo, May 24th, 2009. I'm obsessed. I want to be the best writer in the MFA program. Maybe it's not just me. Maybe we are all emperor penguins, narrow beaks curved out and down, frowning, broad white breasts puffed, eyes small and closed or worried. 
Three days ago, Janine emailed me our mentor's critique of her last packet. According to him, she is a damned good writer. In my packet, he enjoyed my writing, found my novel to be a good idea. None of my work has inspired him to use an expletive, let alone a superlative, hardly the best, I might be the worst penguin of this rookery. During our mid-semester phone call, I asked him if any of my work is publishable. He didn't answer. I gave him at least a minute, maybe two. I could hear the guy breathing. He didn't say a word. So what did I do? I burst into tears. From his apartment in Seattle, this 62-year-old published writer had to respond, Oh, oh my, oh dear, I didn't mean for this to happen. Please, what can I do to help? Euthanasia, I wish I'd said. He insisted I was a talented writer, and he didn't mean to make me feel bad. He just wanted to suggest that I try to write more recursively. I said, I've been writing recursively since I was 12. If a poet can't write recursively, she can't write. Oh, God, I was crying, sobbing. What an ass I am. A needy, repulsive, snotty ass. When I told Bill, he just nodded and took out the garbage. But what the fuck? Janine must have known her email would ignite sibling rivalry. But what the fuck to me, too? Let it go. I can't control what anyone thinks about my writing. But I want to. Dorothea Brand glares from the bookshelf. I am supposed to read her, but I already know I won't benefit from her 1934 advice. I am a mediocre writer in a mediocre school, performing mediocre work for a mediocre mentor who requires the reading of craft manuals. I have relocated Dorothea to the garage. I will not study her to write my paper. Instead, I will explain how I am learning to be a novelist, not through analysis, but by reading great fiction. And so I write. Tired little waves deposit yellow foam on gray sand. Characters for a novel, all damaged. There is one woman who lives alone, a writer. She's successful, maybe not so much in life. She's named Louise, or Janine. No, Dolores. Too sad. Madeline. Nice. But no. Eliza C. Yes. Eliza C., a writer, a novelist, critically acclaimed. Chapter 5. Why Anyone? May 25, 2009. Eliza? I recognize the voice of our old friend Peg. Peg, I'm so glad you called. How are you? How's Don? We're both fine. I just heard about your butt. How are you? Is there anything I can do besides call in the angels? What? Sure, call in the angels. What can it hurt? You know I love you. Lots of people love you. Thanks, Peg. I've never felt ahead in any popularity contests, but thank you for the thought. Well, I know I'm right. About this, I'm right. You will have food more than you can eat. Bill and Grace will put on some weight. I chew one side of my lip, then a cuticle. I picture diminutive Peg and her husband, in their little red brick house, Peg standing over her kitchen sink, arranging vases full of blossoms from her gardens. I had uterine cancer, Eliza. Did you know that? I'm sorry, when? You had uterine cancer? I scanned back through mental images, trying to remember when Peg was ever sick enough to be hospitalized. Maybe five or six years ago, she had a hysterectomy and was back on her feet sooner than predicted. When I had my surgery, I didn't want to do any of their chemo or other treatments, so I did my own thing instead. I went to church, and it worked. My angels worked. 
I didn't want to worry people. That's why I didn't tell anyone. Not one soul except Don. My doctors were furious. Peg, I wish you'd have told me. I feel bad now. We thought you were all set when you went home. You two were alone. You must have been so scared. I could never do that. Stay silent, sick with all those fears. You're amazing. You're even more amazing than I knew. Oh, I don't know about that. I feel certain you will get through this. Life never stays the way we want it. I'm telling you, I look back on the first 50 years of my life and I think it was a fairy tale. In the bathroom, I reach below to clean myself, trying to avoid the red flame. Maybe it will shrink to a Concord tomorrow, a champagne the day after, wrinkle, then fall away completely. I fill a baggie with ice and water, scooch it between my cheeks and lie down on the den sofa. Suki calls. How are you, pumpkin? Oh, you won't believe the latest. You won't. Ready? I grin at my friend's impatience. She can never wait for an answer to a question. Christopher and Maddie are starting their own MFA program. Christopher Hummel and Maddie Schwartz met at our MFA program, fell in love, and divorced their spouses. Oh, no, they're not, Sue. That's not true. Aha! Yes, they are. Yeah, in Philadelphia. No, you can't be serious. They graduated, what, the semester before we started? Has either of them even published anything except maybe online? What school would administer a program with either of them as director? Wild, huh? It's true, Rachel told me. Sue, really, who's going to enroll? For that matter, who would consider teaching at a program they ran? The gossip is working. I relax into the black leather, distracted, until the baggie bursts. Shit, shit, I have to go, Soup. Later, frozen lima beans now soothing the pain, I call my friend back, warn her. If you tell anyone, tell anyone? Who would I tell? You have to admit, though, if you post frozen lima beans between butt cheeks, you're going to go viral right away. I fill a small pot with water and light a flame underneath. I remove four eggs from the fridge and find a slotted spoon in the drawer. The phone rings. The flame stays high. Eliza? Hello, Wendy? Wendy moved to Tennessee five years ago for a college gig she shares with her husband. Yeah, hey, I... Hey, I owe Eliza. I... Well, I wanted to call right away, but I... I... You know, sure, when. I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Does that sound so stupid? I hear my old friend sob into the mouthpiece. On the stove, the water continues to boil away. An egg rolls closer to the counter edge. For two minutes, I let her cry. Then I try to break in. It's okay, Wen. It's all right. She gurgles until I say, listen, Wen, calm down. Pull yourself together, woman. I'm not dead yet. That's why you can call me. Wendy hiccups and laughs a little. Then she launches in. Oh, God, I was so shocked, so shocked. God, we saw you, what, nine months ago? Was it August? I think so. I can't remember. It was last summer, anyway, after my residency in July. Not too long ago, though. You looked fabulous, so young, and you are so healthy. God, Eliza, why you? You're the healthiest friend I have. You exercise and eat right, and you're happy. <laughs> why me? Why not me? Why anyone? Anyway, I was thinking of you, and, you know, don't worry about the colostomy, because Hank's grandfather had one. Or, no, he had a bag for urine. It's really going to be okay, really. I mean, the guy was fine as long as he remembered to empty it. Sometimes he leaked. He, I mean, he was old. Hick, you're not old. Nope, I'm not old, Wen. Not yet. So how are you anyway? How's Hank? I lower the first egg into the pan, hand wobbling.
Eliza C. Brooks no asinine phone calls, even from close friends, or what passes her close friends. She cuts them off right away, or she doesn't pick up in the first place. On her apartment landline, she's had caller ID since the mid-80s. Eliza? George, hello, thanks for calling. Hi, dear, I heard, I, I heard from Sally. Oh, man, Eliza, this is terrible. Well, really terrible. I don't know what to say. I dig at a hangnail on my left thumb, burrowing deep enough to draw a small bead of blood. I want to reach into my stomach and rip out the trembling there. I bite my lip, suck my nettled thumb. George, he needs to get a grip. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Well, well, duh. Kenny and Wallace call two days later. George has apparently warned them that I seemed a little on edge. I love their voices like birds. Kenny's high, Wallace is lower. Eliza, Kenny chirps. And Eliza, honey, says Wallace. How are you? We just found out, Kenny starts. Wallace breaks in. We're so, we're so sorry. We don't, we don't know what to say. I want to calm them down. I'd also like to butt their heads together. It's okay, guys. No one does. I don't either, you know. I don't know anything. This is all new. No practice, right? Plus, you, really, you don't have to say anything. I mean, about me. I'm glad you called. It's good to hear your voices. So how's tricks? How's the shop? Hey, Wallace, I almost forgot. How was Italy? Cool. Italy was very cool. Milano exponentially so, and is over there now, while I, so sadly, so very sadly, am here. On a paper napkin, I print Milano with my pencil, then doodle circles around it. Correction, slight, Kenny interrupts. He's here with me, and the shop is fine. The shop misses your face and your hair. The shop misses all of you. The shop wishes you lived in Manhattan. My butt isn't up for any more sitting than the ride to doctor's appointments. So yeah, even if I lived in Brooklyn, you'd have to quaff me on our sofa. They coo. Kenny says, poor butt. Such a cute butt, too. Too, too cute, says Wallace. Eliza, I have this friend in Hartford. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor last spring, and Kenny and I went to stay with him twice while he was dying. Well, it, I don't know. It made me think of you. I've been thinking a lot about him and you. Thanks, Wallace, I say, because I don't know what else to say. A suspicion gnaws that Wallace knows something about my future the doctors haven't told me yet. At 3.15 a.m., I pluck infinite jest from the bedroom bookcase. Don Gately understands. That Gately, my hero. Still, he had addictions, not cancer. Okay, he was on the lam from the police, too. Cancer? Shit. What would Gately do? I cruise infinite jest, rereading Gately's sections, his character so big and awkward, visible on the page. I love the way he thinks and how hard it is sometimes to distinguish him from DFW, the way Wallace skis in the tracks of his characters. Then I land on page 435, a passage I hadn't noticed before. God, I think, choking on a mouthful of coffee. At the top of that list, colostomy, Jesus. I feel disgusting enough already. Now I will be less enviable than someone who craps on a chair or pukes across the room. Dear DFW, why did you write that? Why and why and why? I read the paragraph once more, close the novel, and heft its poundage to the table. I want Bill to hold me. He stands by the sunroom door, squinting in the morning sunshine. In the hours when he is away, I ride the waves by myself. My hands, only mine, clutch the gunnels. I am the one inhaling the sick stench of bilge rising. Those hours are mine only in which to shudder, to breathe, 
to live with fear, every moment lighting on it, every moment placing it aside. I feel sucked under. I don't want to have a CT scan, let alone learn the results. I'd rather let the water close over my head, but then I sense a scrabbling start, an inching upward. God, I say out loud, I am so disgusting. The idea, I mean the coming reality, the colostomy. No, Bill answers, these things happen. This does not make you disgusting. Oh, oh yes it does. Bill moves into the kitchen, holds me. No, you're wrong. You have to trust me on this. Chapter 6, Scuttled. May 26, 2009. After Grace leaves for school, I revisit the first two chapters of Scuttled, my thesis novel in progress. Waiting for the pages to print, I check my email for acceptances, none, or rejections, three. Deleting the political spam, I pour another mug of coffee and mindlessly read the junk mail. I fret that my novel is a poor redo of rules for old men waiting, except my protagonist, Jebediah Simmons, is neither sick nor feeble. A two-time widower and fixture in his small northern main town, the old veterinarian mushes his six huskies for miles every day, snow or bare. I'm unsure about the plot. I walk back to check the laundry status, almost enough for a white load. Forcing myself to read through the pages, I realize that I have lost all interest in Jeb's story. The only tale I can tell right now is mine. I suppose I could try inserting myself into Jeb's plot, but how? A middle-aged love interest with rectal cancer? No, Jeb will have to wait. All I can write about is my unfolding crisis. And yet, I dread dragging my family through my ordeal in print. It feels unfair to the people walking through this with me to chronicle their reactions. I trust my family and my friends, but what if they are not strong enough? What if they leave me? If those are flaws, it isn't my right to expose them. So if I write a memoir, I have to be very careful, because despite the scandals surrounding a million little pieces and three cups of tea, people still believe that autobiographies are true. No, if I'm going to write my own story, I must leave room for fiction. My challenge, then, how to write a novel that won't threaten those I love or the love of those I love, a novel about a woman who uses fiction as a way to endure an ordeal, a novel about a writer, about me. My protagonist is damaged yet flourishing, a successful 53-year-old novelist diagnosed with rectal cancer. Tall, thin, brown hair with blonde highlights, pale green eyes, or green eyes speckled brown, or hazel. They can be all three, altering over the course of the novel. Julian Barnes suggests it doesn't matter that Emma's eyes change hue. Eliza C. lives in Manhattan in an apartment on the south side of 10th Street, between 5th and 6th Avenues. It's a posh neighborhood now, but when she moved there in the early 70s, it was perfect for a struggling young writer, safe and exciting in equal measures. Her best friend Juliet, a painter and professor, lives five long blocks east off Broadway. On the phone with Jill later, I explained, it's not just a memoir for sure. I don't want to write that. Plus, I'm not crazy about being memorialized for rectal cancer. And what if people in my life behave badly? Because we all do. You know we do. In those moments, I feel like I'll be criticizing, you know, so indelibly the people closest to me. I'd be pinioned by the truth as I see it. So now it's a novel, right? Yeah, well, I'm basing it on fact. So, fact or all fiction, it's got to be art, too.
¿Está bien? <laughs> That's it for now, my dear. <laughs> I wanted to stop there because my last podcast episode I had, I had this whole discussion with a different writer about how writing is mostly invisible. It's an art. We don't see it as it's happening. But then you make writing so entirely visible. The more I read this and read again and looked back, you write about writing. You write about whether it's going to be memoir or a novel. You write about the truth in fiction and the fiction in truth. It's very interwoven in this way that's very um, seamless, I guess I'll say, because it's hard to see aside from meeting Eliza C. So how did you do it? <laughs> how did you get to that point? And how did you decide all along? And, and I do have questions about, you know, the role that your friends and family play. We just heard this really intense section where you get this uh, onslaught of all the kind of calls that you were getting, which right. are difficult. But I also thought my, the calls with Jill were very steadily stabilizing. Right. That's clear. Uh, you know, so so many really dear friends here. I, I, I really, I, I, I mean, I'm really glad I didn't want to be a journalist because I would have been really bad. I don't think there's much difference. I When I daydream during the day, I don't daydream about reality staying real. I don't know how many people do. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, I just mean I, I'm always either re, rewriting what I said to somebody or rewriting mm. you know, a, a situation. I think it's, we're all, right. we, we all do that because it's just human nature to do that. We, we can't. There are facts. <laughs> facts exist, right. but we do. I think we're all trying to figure out how to how to best make the facts, you know, sort of work for us or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a. I don't know if it's a writing thing, or if it's just. I don't know. Yeah. My my editor. I have a good editor. I mean, a lot of people don't like that process, but for me, it's really helpful because I want to be better than I can be. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your editor. For me, it was such a good fit. I respected her and I liked her from the beginning. That founding feeling that I had for her, and I think she for me, created a bond that's very strong so that I did trust her while we were working on this book. And for me, that's very important because I want to give, I want to be able to give control to her. Mm -hmm. And then if I don't agree with something, then we talk about it. Yeah, She would never try to change my intention or my vocabulary ever. Mm -hmm. um, I think she's pretty good at knowing what, what we don't need, mm. what we cut out, mm -hmm. and also figuring out what hasn't quite worked yet. In the beginning, when I was expanding the book before compressing it, she would just ask me a question, and then she'd write down my answer. It did two things. It made me feel as though what I said was important to her, mm -hmm. but it also helped me explain what I meant. You know, I remember once she said, well, what, what does this mean? And I said, I'm, I'm just, I was defining a, a vocabulary word. And she said, no, Eliza, I know what the word means. I mean, what do you mean? Right. And it's you know, just a wonderful, very good fit. Yeah. So tell me more about Eliza C, because she is. She's good. She evolved into what I understood to be an alter ego. Right. I love knowing her because you can alter an alter ego to be whatever you need it to be at the moment. And so she's in this book, she does and says the things that I would never have done or said to my doctors or Bill or anybody. 
And th this book turned into the first of a trilogy. And the middle book was about caretaking my husband. It is about, but I couldn't, I should just say that my husband died a month after the launch of, of the colors I saw. So it was so shocking. He had been ill for, I guess, two years by then, but he had been winning. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write a sequel to this book because I thought colors is really about people taking care of me when I was sick. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to write about the role of a caretaker because it's exhausting. And mm -hmm. I don't read a lot of books that really show the true exhaustion of caretaking. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write that book. And I also wanted to write about Bill's valiance in the face of his own illness, because he was, he was very valiant. So I was taking notes on that book while I was finishing the editing and you know, the last stages of this book. And then when he died, I remember standing in the hospital room saying to my son, this can't be the end of the book about mm, caretaking. Right. So the next day I called my publisher and said, I, I'm hoping that I can secure a third book because I don't want this book to end with his death. Right. So she said, of course, that, that makes sense. So in the first book, Eliza C. is this person who is protecting me from other people. In the second book, she's really horrible. She's worse than she is. And she's getting mad. She says and does the things to Bill, to my husband, and to his doctors and our friends that I wouldn't say or do. Mm. Right? So she's a different alter ego. She's despicable. In the third book, which is about grief, which I'm actually writing now because I couldn't continue writing the middle book because it was too hard to write about being mad at my husband, mm -hmm. about being exhausted. So I just right. decided I'll shelve that. So now I've right. been writing, I've pretty much finished with this book about grief. And in that book, Eliza C., she's kind of even worse because she's doing and saying the things to me that I wouldn't do or say. She's a horror. Oh, oh. Anyway, having a fictional character, it's, it's just, it just anchors. It anchors the, yeah. like it anchors the fun in it too. That's interesting. So, I mean, that's a lot. And I was curious to know about what you're working on now and next. So those other two in the trilogy that you mentioned are not out yet, but no. you're working on them both simultaneously, right. kind of, or one right. and the other. Yeah. So another thing about the colors I saw, we sort of see the birth of Eliza C. in the middle of the book, even though we meet her in the beginning of the book. So right. that's quite clever and fun to see. It's like we witness her coming into being. And I guess, did Eliza see, was she your alter ego companion as you were living all of this? Or did it happen after when you were writing it? She came into better focus after. Okay. But during then, you know, I would have a thought to say something that I wouldn't do or say, and I'd write that down. So they were like notes from my alter ego. I didn't know that when I was doing it, but it was fun. And, and Nancy Sayer, my, my editor and publisher, she's the person who figured out when to introduce her and how and how to make a mystery of her more than I, I understood. It just, I wouldn't have thought of that. Mm -hmm. Also, imagining, how, you know, how this horrible character came to be, that was just fun. Then I did that afterwards because I didn't know who she would be. Right. So... First of all, I'm I'm so sorry about Bill's passing. And the fact that it happened right as your book was coming out must it was have really, been. It was really just a weird, 
I don't know. And this yeah. happens. I mean, and then, you know, and then four months later, COVID happens and right. everybody's having weird things happening. I don't, I don't want to dwell on how hard it was for him to die, but it was, I wasn't expecting him to die yeah. at all. I think other people were, but anyway. So what was Bill's, what did he think of Eliza C? I, I'm assuming he saw your fully finished. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He thought she was funny. I mean, he liked, he liked the idea. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I always think, oh, gosh, you know, she's your alter ego, but he's your husband. And like, she's uh, all of that. He didn't have a mind like that. He was right. when I was working on the on the middle book about it, caretaking. One day I was feeling just like I can't write this about. I was telling him I can't write this book. I don't want to. It's just like I don't want to expose you. Why I can't write this book. And he said, no, no, no. Of course you can. Just think of me as a character in your book. So that was his personality. He didn't. He didn't need to trust people the way I do. He was very mm. balanced. Yeah. Well, it's all very interesting, and and it's lovely to meet him because I do think that your rapport with him is a full dimensional husband wife mm. rapport. You know, there's right. there's difficulties there, but he right. clearly is. Um, solid guy with all the stuff that you ended up going through. Right. So my classic question, what was most daring about this book for you? Hmm. I don't know. Um, that's a stumper. (laughs) I will say, I think everything about it is daring. If I didn't say that already, because probably, I mean, yeah. it just reminded me of something. My friend Jill was having dinner with somewhere in New York, and she happened to be sitting next to, I think it was an agent, not an editor. This was when I was trying to find a home for this book, when it was, I think, still a novel. So she was telling him about it. He said, rectal cancer? Can't she find any other kind of cancer? Any other kind of cancer, she will not find a publisher for this book because it's rectal cancer. And I remember Jill calling me and telling me this, and, and, and I just remember responding, "Well, but rectal cancer is what I had, so I don't think of it as as daring. Mm. I just think of it as real. But I mean, it, it is true that I don't want to be memorialized for rectal cancer. That's not, and I didn't want to be memorialized for bulimia when I was writing that memoir. I mean, it's mm. not." I just think we're just given what we're given. We're just given what we're given and we just have to deal with it. So I don't think of it as daring. It's more Mm. that piece of being true to yourself. You have to be true to the things that you don't like the most about yourself sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I think it also has to do with bravery in a certain way. And and you're absolutely right. Like, this is the thing that I had. And, And that even goes in keeping with the way friends have reaction, you know, in that section that we heard, I was thinking how it's almost like when they were calling you with these reactions, it's like putting up a mirror that sort of shows you their own insides of Mm -hmm. their own fears, because I think Mm -hmm. we can't help but Mm -hmm. reveal our own insecurities or fears or Mm -hmm fear of insensitivity, whatever. It's hard to know what to say. And 
there you are just kind of rolling <laughs> rolling with it all and that at once is a really hard thing and a really generous thing because i think that your reaction again to me feels very true like well you know i i haven't been through this either like what what am i what can i tell you i, mean, I don't know how many friends you've had or if you haven't had a good friend who has died but i i lost a very close friend a couple of years ago and when my friend Ruth was dying, the, the shoe was on the other foot, and I didn't know what to say to her. But we were such close friends, it didn't matter at all. We would talk about death every day. It was after Bill had died, but it was when she was dying. Mm. And she knew she was dying, but it, it was a long time. It was like nine months, I think, that she was in hospital, something like that, a lot longer than they thought. And we would talk, and I would always ask her, you know, do you want to talk about this? This must be awful. And she said, of course I want to talk. There's no practice. I, you know, I'm doing it right now. Right. And I do want to talk. I couldn't say the wrong thing to her. Mm -hmm. right. And I think that really my friends, when I'm kind of mocking the friends who, some of whom are fictional and some aren't, who, who were saying the wrong thing, I didn't, you know, I, they were still calling. Right. Exactly. I, I, that's what I was thinking is, you know, it doesn't matter what they say. There, it, it, on one level, there's probably not a right thing to say. Right thing. And on the other hand, yes, they're they're the people who are calling. Right. Um, right. And that's that says a lot right there. Right. Oh, the the discomfort about the rectal cancer. And I I mean, of of all the things in this book that stands out to me, if you don't mind, I might read one little quote back to you that made a huge impact on me. And it was um, Dr. McLeod who spoke to you, who said, you know, you are not alone in any of this. There's a lot of people walking around with parts missing or parts rearranged. You just don't hear about them. Think about it. There's no brown ribbon for colorectal cancer. And when I read that, I was like, yes, there should be. So it turns out my friend Norma in Illinois said that to a nurse because I had said that to her at the time. Oh, yeah. And the nurse said, that's not true. Ooh. There is a ribbon for colorectal cancer and it's not brown. It's royal blue. Oh. Isn't that interesting? And royal blue is one of my favorite colors. <laughs> oh. But I, she sent me. She the, the nurse gave my friend Norma a, one of those rubber bands, you know, that, that people wear for causes. Oh yeah. That was a blue band with with for rectal cancer or whatever on it. And I, I've never worn it. I mean, I was touched that the nurse said this and touched that Norma sent it to me. But you know, a ribbon, a ribbon still doesn't. It doesn't do well. Yes. Whatever a ribbon does or doesn't do, I, I, I mean, not to be, I'm not trying to make a statement one way or the I other know, about it, but I think I know what you mean. I know. It just depends on your personality, maybe. It, it's not important to me either. Right. But when he said that, I thought, yeah. And then I, and then, you know, after I saw that, I thought, well, it's nice, but I don't have my rectum still. <laughs> but it's okay. Those things are so minor, really. I think in the end, that's what I hope this book does. If it does anything is to just show that you don't die from embarrassment. Yes. Nobody dies from embarrassment. We just don't. We want to maybe. Right. But we don't. And we don't die because we can't poop the way we used to. 
It's just right. you know, life is always about adapting. And the the book that I'm working on now that is the last of these books, the, the trilogy, is I don't like living alone. And especially during COVID, it's, it's been really difficult. But a few months ago, I realized that what I need to do now is I need to find a way to love living alone. Mm. I don't know that I will be able to do that, but that's my goal. And that's what I've been writing about and trying to figure out. And a friend of mine the other day said, because COVID still is here, some of us are more aware of it probably than yes. others, but it's still impacting the world. And there are still people, too many people dying to be ignored. That, he said, means if you don't succeed now, because I had said to him, after Bill died and after I got on my feet again a little bit, we would have been having dinners. He and his wife and I would have been having dinners every other week or whatever. And he said, yes, we would have. And we're not doing that now mm -hmm. still. And he said, so if you can't find a way to learn to love living alone now, don't think that you won't be able to, which I thought was really mm. a beautiful thing to say. Yes. It's like the opposite of some of those phone calls. It was a very beautiful, heartening thing for him to say and for me to hear. Yeah. So I just think it is always about adapting. And I don't want to adapt to like a half-life. Mm -hmm. You know, I want, I want a full life. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much because, yeah, I think that there are things that it goes back to control and how much do yes. we have control over and what can right. we do? And, and I agree. There is something about, I don't have control over this thing. It's not what I like, but how can I learn to love it? Right. Not just love it. Right. That's a bold, you know, a gauntlet to be thrown because on some regard you could say, how can I accept it? But accepting it is not loving it. Yeah. And loving it means right. loving yourself for all of who you are. Right. right. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll be very curious to read more about that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to talk about or share about this book, which is, all right, I'm not going to gush. <laughs> No, I'm just I'm I'm very glad that I that I wrote it. It was worth all the risk, you know. Mm, yeah. I'm glad yeah, you wrote well, it too. Thank you very much, Eliza. I love talking with you. I love your book and I look forward to having other conversations Thanks, with you Michelle. as well. It's been really it's really been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Oh gosh, how many things do I have to uh follow up about about this conversation? I can't thank Eliza enough for first of all, for writing this book and for having the persistence and patience to um, to get it out into the world. It is a great gift Eliza has given us all with her words. And as someone who lost part of my rectum, it is good to hear someone else talking about these issues. It helps make me more brave. The other thing I wanted to mention, the piece that I had mentioned I was working on at the very beginning of our conversation when we were discussing being true to our intention or feeling when we're writing, the piece that I was talking about was my newsletter, 
that I send out to go out once a month with my observations about each podcast. The most recent one I only got out at the very end of December. It was a little story about a turtle and a piano. I am going to include the opening of it in the show notes. And if you are curious about reading the rest of it, send me an email. I will send it to you. Or you could sign up for my newsletter if you would like. It is at my website, michellerado.com, and then it will come to you once a month. Only once a month. It's not going to be, you know, one of those things that clogs up your inbox like all the things I try to unsubscribe from and they still keep showing up. Anyways, you can follow me on Twitter as well. I am at Michelle Rado. I am thinking about trying to figure out Instagram. I'm there as well, but I still have to like figure out how to work with that one. We will see. Since you made it all the way to the end of this podcast episode, I'm going to guess there was something that you liked and that kept you listening. And maybe that is the thing that might encourage you to share this episode or any other episode with someone that you like who you think might enjoy it. Please also remember to click that little plus, that little follow button so that new episodes will pop up into your podcast app of choice the first Tuesday of every month when I put them out. Thank you so much to my husband, Phil Rado, who writes songs, which I snag from time to time to use as my theme music. This one is the alternate choice that I pull up when appropriate. It is called Nothing Like That. Thank you again to Eliza Walton for sharing her time, her work, and words from her memoir, The Colors I Saw. Most of all, thank you for daring to listen. I hope you'll be back to listen again. I may never feel nothing like that Never as real Nothing like that I imagine all the trees can see and the sun can move and the moon will slide into the place where we'll spend eternity I imagine all the trees can see and the sun can move and the moon will slide into that place where we'll spend eternity.